Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. My name is Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based learning center in the Peruvian Andes. Very excited for our discussion today. It's our first pair of interviewees. Um, we are joined today by Danny Burns and Marina Apgar across the pond over from the Institute for Development Studies. Danny Burns is a professorial research fellow at the Institute for Development Studies, a think tank affiliated with the University of Sussex in England. He has directed more than 25 action research projects and programs. His work focuses on participatory learning for social change with a strong emphasis on systems thinking and complexity. He is author of numerous books and papers on participatory action research, including Systemic Action Research, a Strategy for Whole System Change. That was 2007, as well as being co-editor of the Sage Handbook of Participatory Research and Inquiry, 2021. Danny, how's it going? All good. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be with you. And I am thrilled to introduce Marina Apgar. She's a research fellow in the Participation, Inclusion, and Social Change Cluster at IDS, or the Institute of Development Studies. She's a human ecologist with 20 years experience working in the research practice divide with marginalized communities and international development supporting learning and change in complex systems. She has worked extensively with indigenous peoples in Latin America, where she first engaged with systemic and power-aware participatory action research. Today, she combines action research with theory of change to accompany development and humanitarian organizations as they build, test, and improve complexity-aware monitoring and evaluation systems. Marina, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So before we jump in, I just want to say something real quick about this episode and, and season two as a whole. We've kind of been like talking about it briefly over the past few episodes, but we're going to continue to dive into this idea more and more, which is that as most of you all know, our regular listeners, season one, you know, we've really kind of been approaching action research from a lofty angle and talking a lot about the theory behind it and what makes up action research. But we really think that it's important to start talking more about what action research looks like on the ground, especially for you students and practitioners that are kind of dabbling into the world of action research. And, you know, we talk about collaboration, we talk about reflexivity and all these things, but what does that actually look like? It's such a hard picture to paint. So I think today we're going to be doing a little bit of both is what you can expect. We will be looking at action research through somewhat of a theoretical lens, largely having to do with systemic action research. But what I'm really excited about for today's episode is action research project that Danny and Marina have been working on for years, which runs by the acronym CLARISSA, and we'll dive more into that later today. So I just wanted to kind of preface our episode. That's what you can expect um, to hear from us today. All right. Thanks, Adam. So 
you know, one of the things that we like to do is just have the listeners get to know you a little bit. It's nice to know kind of the people who do this work. So what are some things listeners might find interesting about you that they wouldn't get from your bio? I've had a vegan diet for 38 years. And I guess uh, when I started being vegan, not so many people were eating that diet. Now the UN saying it's the solution to climate change. I'm not sure if that's quite right, <laughs> but um, I hope that action research takes the same trajectory and a lot more people start talking about it in a few years time. Marina? A fun fact about myself. Well, I, I have three passports. I have the privilege of being Greek, New Zealand and American. So that is also kind of a little bit of, of my journey, I guess, in terms of the, the work I do and blending different uh, ways of knowing in the world together. That's great. Thanks. Yeah, it'd be interesting to think about how those multiple identities inform your approach to uh, participatory action research and veganism too. Hopefully you're right about action research and participatory action research being as global and effective as veganism. Adam, would you like to start off on the lightning round? It's time for a lightning round. Adam and Joe have prepared some key questions. The challenge is to answer them in the shortest amount of time. Danny, let's start. What is systemic action research? Okay, well, I think you could firstly start off by saying systemic action research is a form of participatory action research. So we're not taking the participatory out of the process by calling it systemic, that's quite crucial. But building on the participatory, uh, we think it's really important both to look at systemic change. In other words, what change is happening in the world and how does that work? And, you know, what's the systemic nature of how you might intervene in that change? So we need to understand how change happens. And if change happens in complex systemic ways, or one thing leads to another, which leads to another, which feedbacks on something else, which is connected some, to something else, unless you can understand that, you can take all the action you want in action research, but it's not gonna to lead to sustainable change. So that's the first piece is understanding the systemic nature of change. And the other is that in order to do that, you actually have to engage with that whole system. So you have to engage with multiple stakeholders in that system, um, or you're only looking at one piece. And if you're only looking at one piece, you also won't get sustainable change. So it's those two things together. Great. Let's keep it going. Let's start off with Marina on this next one. What does collaboration look like in systemic action research? Well, as Danny said, systemic action research is participatory action research. So as in all forms of participatory action research, the central question of collaboration is who who we engage with and how. And the intention always is to move towards building co-ownership through the process. So the issue that's addressed through an action research process should be of direct concern to those involved. And that means that collaboration is central to both the sense-making within the process and the action that uh, we take in response to or to find solutions to that problem. And finally, as Danny already mentioned, with systemic action research, the difference is that we're looking to work with different actors who may play different roles and may sit in different parts of the system to seed change across the system. Awesome. Next question. What is IDS? What makes IDS a fertile ground for this sort of action research? 
Well, IDS is essentially an odd organization because it's an independent organization, but it's also affiliated to Sussex University. So it has a sort of an academic side to it and with all the intellectual conceptualization and so on that goes with that. But it also has very much a practice rooted side to it. So most of the work that IDS does is with and in partnership, in collaboration with people on the ground. And I think it's the hybrid nature of the organisation which allows us to do this sort of work. I think the other thing that's relevant is that there has been a long history of participatory research and work at IDS. So starting with and including Robert Chambers, who's done a lot of uh, foundational work on international development, participation in international development, and uh, others like John Gaventa. But through 20 years of many, many different people developing many different aspects of participatory research, from participatory video to participatory M&E to collaborative inquiries and action research of different sorts. So it's been a sort of, a, there's a critical mass there of different people who approach this in different ways, which allows learning across those, which has given us quite a strong platform and a credibility in that space which allows us to do some of the things we're able to do right now. If I could just add to that, I would say it it lets us have one foot in research slash academia and one foot in practice, which I think is necessary to do action research well. It's a good platform for us, but it's also not about us being in one part of it and the participants, inverted commas, being in another part. So just to be clear, sort of from like an institutional or even administrative level, IDS embodies these important philosophies as it relates to action research and tying practice into theory and, and vice versa. I would certainly say IDS as a whole is very much about the interrelationship between practice and theory and so on, and the relationship between evidence and practice. Of course, IDS is an extremely diverse organization, and there will be people with you know, very diverse perspectives on research within that broader perspective, and the participatory tradition is only one of those. But it's nevertheless important to the narrative that IDS tells the world about what it is. Oh, and that's important, right? You know, it's important to, to be clear about who you are and uh, what, what you're trying to do and, and how you're trying to do it. So what makes IDS a fertile ground for this sort of uh, participatory action research? I think it's pretty much what Danny's already said and Adam, what you just mentioned. So we have, if you like, the institutional support and space. So it values, right, institutionally, but it, what we do is valued and that's really important. I think the fact that it has a global reputation, which has to do with the history of the work, is also helpful because it means, as we'll discuss in terms of the, the project we'll talk about later, being able to actually, if you like, have large-scale experiments around these methods. That's something that we can do from IDS. We can take some risks, perhaps, where others can't. And I think it's also because we work Within IDS, there's many people working on different participatory research um, modalities and, and methodologies. It means that it's a really rich ground to keep learning and keep reflecting on what you're doing. I think that's a really important part because if you think about lots of centres of participatory research all over the world, very often they focus on you know, one form or one practice and maybe that's evolved mm -hmm. over time. For me personally, what's been exciting is, well, you know, if I want to talk about participatory monitoring and evaluation and learning, I go talk to Marina and 80% of what I know she's taught me. 
you know, and then I can talk to Jackie Shaw or Tessa Lewin about visual forms of participatory research and participatory video. And I can talk to other colleagues about how do we engage disabled people in these processes? And so there's sort of different cuts and different ways. And all of that adds up to something much more than us doing our projects, learning from our projects which can be a bit of a self-referential bubble. Important, and we do that, and we'll talk more about that, but to have others coming in with a different angle, saying, well, have you thought about participatory statistics? You know, maybe you could use numbers in a really interesting way. (laughs) That is really sort of, it pushes the boundaries. It pushes us to push the boundaries. Great, thanks. Next question. What is your greatest critique of action research? I guess preface this just by saying these are not critiques of action research, its principles, what it stands for. It's more critiques of the way in which action research has been implemented. And so ways in which we can uh, really think about pushing our practice and ensuring quality. So I have three. The first is that much action research, sadly, is power blind. So not being able to navigate the power relations that are within the group, but also between the group and the facilitator or researcher that's i think one of the the trickiest um, aspects of action research a second critique relates to i think there's a bit of an obsession with the groupness so it's all about working collaboratively in groups that can mean that we focus too much on consensus and agreement and therefore we miss the opportunity to make use of what i think is one of the really core and actually most exciting mechanisms in action research, which is the diversity within the group and using that to think about how new ideas um, are, are generated. And the third is that I think there's at times an over-reliance on experiential knowledge alone. Yeah. So obviously experiential knowledge is central to the action research process and, and that we have to hold it as central. But are we actually as methodologically plural as we might like to think we are? So I think bringing in other forms of knowledge, other forms of evidence to enhance understanding around the issue within a group can also be really, really helpful. And yeah, and in a way you could frame all of those as challenges for the participatory research community in a sense, rather than critiques as such, certainly critiques of some past practice. But I think it's been really interesting for us both as editors in different ways in the new Sage Handbook of Participatory Research and Inquiry to see how a lot of contemporary participatory research practitioners have been really grappling with these issues and finding solutions and ways through them, which I think is is testament to a sort of coming of age of this sort of method. I'll just add a few other thoughts really to Marina's. I think one is that, of course, action research can't do everything. Nothing can do everything. And there are times when you need randomized control trials to test your drugs or whatever it might be. Action research probably can't do that for you. So it's always about thinking about what do you need to use for what sort of context. I mean, and almost at the other end of the spectrum, I'd sort of say, I remember reading a lovely piece of writing by Yolande Wadsworth, who some of you may know is really very much a a sort of a founding figure in thinking around action research, uh, systemic action research, certainly from my point of view. But she uses this analogy of learning to ride a bicycle. And she talks about how you put your first foot on the pedal and then you go and then you tip and then you adjust. And then you, at the same time, you're thinking about you know, like, where are you going to go? And are you trying to get somewhere? And then you hit a puddle and you go through and you get wet and you do something else. And in a sense, everyday life is action research. 
every little thing we do day to day, we're thinking, okay, where am I trying to go? What, what do I base that on? You know, what are my assumptions here? Let's plan some action. Okay, based on those assumptions, let's do it. Okay, no, it didn't go well, do something else. You know, so you're, and then you start again. In a, a micro cycle or a macro cycle or parallel cycles, that is everyday life. So in a sense, you can't critique that. That's us. The issue is how do we bring research and inquiry back to that common sense? Because sometimes some mainstream research has sort of left that common sense way behind. Um, so in a way, we're just trying to return research to that sort of common sense, iterative, step-by-step inquiry process. So it's sort of the opposite perspective. Yeah, that's great. I, I feel like we could go down a rabbit hole right now looking at like <laughs> pragmatism, phenomenology, positivism you know, neo-modernism and all those other isms, it would be a lot of fun, but we probably shouldn't do that right now. So that wraps up our lightning round. Thank you. Uh, now we're going to move on to the next set, but a uh, lot of food for thought with this lightning round. I'm going to build off of something, Danny, that, that you said, and perhaps we can use it as a segue or incorporate it into the next question that I have, because I want to start hearing more about the, this action research project that you guys have been working on for a really long time now, which is the Clarissa Project. And while the question is very straightforward, what is the Clarissa Project? Uh, perhaps you could build off of what you were saying before about how AR can't necessarily do everything, right? Sometimes you need other types of research. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about what the Clarissa Project is and what conditions are in place within that project to justify it as being one within the action research or systemic action research realm. Clarissa is focused on worst forms of child labor. It initially started out um, in Myanmar, Nepal, and Bangladesh, but unfortunately, as a result of COVID, FCDO cuts, and the coup all happening at the same time, we had to lose the Myanmar part of the program. But it's a large-scale program. Um, I think it started out in, in UK currency at around 11 million, so it's not a small program. And that means that over time, we've built up a, a staff team, which includes internationals and in-country people in two offices now um, of around 80 plus people. So we're trying to build something at scale. And in that sense, it's more than a typical intervention project, or and it's certainly more than your typical action research project. And it's trying to answer some of the questions about how do you build participatory processes at scale, but with a specific focus, which is worst forms of child labor. We'll come back to that in a minute. In doing that, we were very clear that we had some core values. One was child-centeredness, that we wanted the program to be child-centered. The second was participation, which meant really that we didn't want the scale of the program to dilute the power of the participatory process. The third was linked to our systemic and complexity narrative that we talked about earlier was that it is, it, it is adaptive and iterative and builds step by step and learns as it goes along. And the third one is that it is truly integrated. So we have multiple partners and we don't just like segment off all of their little bits, but we create an integrated set of teams which builds on all of the skills of, of all of the different partners that are in there. And some have really amazing you know, child protection skills and others have skills in participatory process and others have skills in child labor and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, all of our participants on the ground have an amazing array of skills related to their day-to-day -day life experience and the risks that they take. So it is a, a mixed method program. 
but with participatory processes at its core and with action research at its sort of real as its heartbeat, if you like. So in each of the countries, we'll be running 18 parallel participatory action research processes. Just to give you an idea of the scale, if you think 18 different groups, each of which might have up to 25 meetings. So that's over 400 action research meetings um, across the activity span of the programme in each country. Those action research groups have been underpinned by a different sort of evidence. So eight of those 18 will be underpinned by the collection of 400 life stories of children in the worst forms of child labour. The children have collected a lot of those stories and the children have analysed all of those stories through a complex process of building system maps, mini system maps of each story, building into a macro system map of all of the big pathways and trajectories, causal links, linear and non-linear, which then they dialogue amongst themselves. So, so eight of them have been underpinned by that evidence. Three will be underpinned by interviews with business owners. So this speaks to the systemic again. So the eight there are with children, but the next three are with business owners, small businesses of naught to 20 people, people that are employing these children. Three will be built on the evidence of a participatory GIS mapping process, where we baseline with drones the slum areas where these children are working. We map the things they think are important, which relates to worst forms of child labour, and then we'll build three action research groups out of those. And three, which will be related to much more experiential evidence around workplace conditions. So they have been phased over eight months to a year. And alongside that, we, we have a separate process, but connected, which is a social protection pilot in Bangladesh. We won't focus on that now because it's not so action research oriented. But what you can see is that we're, we're drawing on a multiple types of research. Some of the, at the core is the action research process that's supported by other types of participatory research and other types of more traditional research. And then overlaid on that, which Marina will talk about in much more depth, is a whole plethora of um, participatory and other processes which builds the learning system. Uh, the monitoring and evaluation and learning process, which is also a form of action research, a sort of a meta-level form of action research. Maybe that's enough for me to start off with. Marina, did you want to add to that? I can talk a little bit later, perhaps, about that learning infrastructure and the fact that we view action research as an intervention, if you like, right? An intervention into this complex you might say, wicked problem of the worst forms of child labor. So in that sense, one of the core goals of the program is to model how you use action research in response mm -hmm. to the worst forms of child labor, but also how we learn from that and how we build an evidence base around how action research works. So Adam, also to your question of if you like, why is it the right approach to respond to this particular problem? It's precisely because it is an evidence-weak area, so we don't really understand what drives children into the worst forms of child labour. Therefore, we also don't know what appropriate solutions are. Until now, much of the work around child labour and interventions 
are developed without the input of children themselves and other stakeholders in these systems. So there's an opportunity to test how a more participatory approach works in that context. And more broadly, there's also the, the evidence base around how action research works is scattered, right? So there's a lot of evidence, which is in our practice, in lots of people's writing, um, you know, everywhere. So I'm not suggesting there isn't any evidence, but in the international development sector, there isn't a coherent body of evidence around using action research as an intervention. So that's why uh, we have this response in the form of a large uh, project and, and, and the opportunity that presents. But I guess also the ultimate goal is really around the evidence and innovation that comes through these action research processes. And I, I'm not sure, Danny, if you mentioned that. So currently we're working with children who are working in the adult entertainment sector in, in Nepal and in Bangladesh, in Dhaka, with children who are engaged in the many processes of the leather supply chain. So we're talking about, you know, really, really difficult conditions. And of course, the project is living through COVID, as we all are. So you know, we can see kind of that additional impact and effect on what's already extremely difficult conditions. So you know, ultimately, also the project is about that, right? It's it's mm. about actually generating actions and supporting a yeah a participatory and kind of systemic approach to that issue. And just to connect it to that, the, I mean, the other thing I didn't mention, which is important, is that in a sense we've got three sort of overarching questions which are related to the content part of this, as opposed to the process part of it. <laughs> like one which is what are the pathways of children into worse forms of child labor so a lot of that is built out of their histories learning why they took certain steps what were their family backgrounds what were the drivers that pushed them into child labor the second in relationship to both the adult entertainment sector and the leather sector is you know what can we learn about these complex supply chains or human chains which we've framed the nepal scenario as in other words the child is more like the commodity in a sense what can we learn from these human chains and these supply chains about what pulls people into child labor what is it about the nature of these businesses which makes them have to employ children in these awful jobs and the third is what can we learn about the neighborhood dynamics in complex urban environments which push children in particular into worse forms of child labor so there's a sort of a set of questions that you sort of meta-level questions that we're asking, as well as the specific questions which will be in the action research groups, which the children and the stakeholders will generate themselves, which will then lead to innovations, as well as the meta-level evaluation questions about the nature of the process itself and how it contributes to change. It sounds like there are a lot of stakeholders, a lot of participants, a lot of organizations and people working collaboratively and independently and intersectionally and in a variety of different ways. And you mentioned the research questions and the action questions and the issue. So could you talk a little bit about how do you work together with all of these different people in these many countries and these many positionalities to 
work towards these mm. goals? I mean, I can start on this one. It's, as you say, there's many of them. <laughs> and as Danny explained, the sort of integrated nature of it means that it is quite complicated. But there are four, I guess, layers, if you like, of, of stakeholders involved in the program. So first and foremost are the children and other stakeholders in these particular systems of child labor, so adult entertainment sector in Kathmandu and leather supply chain in Dhaka. So those broader stakeholders, Danny's mentioned some of them already, business owners themselves, parents, guardians, child protection agencies, and uh, you know police, police forces, et cetera, and many others in those systems. So they are kind of central to, to everything. That's where it all happens. So the work with them in ways that Danny described through these different forms of participatory inquiry, participatory action research, and social protection interventions, et cetera, is supported through a, our teams in countries. So we have integrated implementation teams, which are across a number of NGO partners, and they form these large facilitation and documentation teams. So one of the things we've done, particularly because of our interest in this kind of evidencing how action research works, is that we've made sure that there's quite a lot of resource and actual documentation of the processes. This is one of the weaknesses in action research often is actually not fully understanding what happened and how things happened. The teams also have experts in advocacy, communications, monitoring, evaluation, and learning. And so these teams, as I say, are the ones that work directly with the children and others in these places. And we are in constant communication with them. So one of the core kind of strategies of working with the teams in country is through having cross-country and bringing in those of us who are supporting but not in-country into dialogue sort of every couple of weeks. The third layer is us and other partners that form the consortium, the Clarissa Consortium, which includes IDS as the lead and the only research institute. And then three NGOs working in child rights and children's participation and advocacy, which is Terre which are headquartered in Lausanne in Switzerland, and Child Hope and the Consortium for Street Children that are based here in the UK. So across the four core partners, the consortium, there's a group of people who are all engaged in supporting the teams on the ground in various ways. Some are experts in participatory research, others are child protection experts, safeguarding experts, advocacy. And so those sort of three layers, the consortium internationally, the in-country teams, and then the people on the ground, we have mechanisms through which we come together periodically. And then there's kind of a broader network that the consortium uh, members are part of extensive networks across the world, which are engaging with issues around child labor and advocacy, et cetera. And they're, of course, form part of the, the broader, if you like, global kind of advocacy side of the program. So a very large team. One of the, the, the key things is that we organize ourselves around different groups. So we have a monitoring, evaluation, and learning kind of team, uh, a team that focuses on the design of the participatory processes. And these teams bring together country and international colleagues and meet very often. So one of the things that's really worked to hold it together as an integrated program is that we do uh, spend quite a lot of time, sadly nowadays on Zoom. <laughs> we would have been spending more time there and then here. And we did actually initially, didn't we, Danny, the setup mm -hmm. stage of the program, 
The country coordinators, who are key people in country, spent quite a lot of time here with us to begin with. COVID and new technology have added a new dimension to this program. You know, on the one hand, we would have spent two weeks out in each of those countries and building one-to-one -one relationships and so on and so forth, which is crucial in terms of trust building and um, understanding how people work and all of those things. But the flip side is that with the way in which Zoom and other platforms have really developed their technology, we have been able to run the whole of this operation, if you like, out of uh, Teams and other sorts of platforms. So everyone in every single person across the program has got access to every single document. We have two weekly meetings of what we call our process design team, our thematic research team, our MEL teams. Each of them have you know, very regular meetings across countries in ways which probably would never have been possible if we were traveling across the world all of the time. So, you know, swings and roundabouts, but there's certainly been some huge benefits as well as some of the negatives, which raise some interesting questions for the design of large, large programs. I mean, I think the only thing I would want to reiterate rather than add to what Marina said is what we've just been talking about describes action research as an intervention modality. So you can see, in a sense, we're talking about a lot of people, a large program of people. So whereas in the past, maybe an international development program might be hiring an organization to deliver this stuff, which has been programmed based on an expert analysis, our concept of intervention in, in relationship to these complex issues like worst forms of child labor is that we do it in a participatory way. But in a sense, we're doing it at the same scale as some other traditional intervention programs. So the program and modality is action research. And I think that's a, a sort of a slightly different mindset to both how traditional programming has thought about things and also how a lot of people within the action research community have thought about things. Well, and I think that is a really important point and one, and one worth repeating and, and maybe discussing a little bit more because I think that is one of the things that action research as a paradigm provides for the global work of addressing persistent and wicked problems that we're facing. So the common critique of large-scale international development programs is that they often miss the real problem that's happening on the ground because they have an expert who has decontextualized some Absolutely. of the data. And so now what is actually happening on the ground has no relevance to the communities for which it's meant to, to serve in action research. And, and this particular systemic action research approach really gets at that. And of course, one of the issues with action research, and I think it's not an issue, I think it's a mistaken assumption in the global kind of literature is that action research needs to be very small scale and specific. And what you're saying is it doesn't. In fact, it actually can work really well and maybe better than some other paradigms in this large scale systemic multi-million dollar projects. Um, is that exactly. is that accurate? I think that's exactly it. And in a way we're, we're modeling, learning, practicing in a sense how to do large scale action research processes, but um, being absolutely clear that in doing so, the participatory process has to remain at the heart. I think that's the tricky thing is there's been lots of examples in the past of large scale programs that effectively just turn into a big consultation with the experts still delivering the stuff once they've heard the voices or 
not bothered to hear the voices. Or, as you say, it becomes sort of small-scale micro stuff, which is wonderfully rich. And, and we've, you know, heard many stories of the wonderful things that those things do, but they don't get to grips with the larger-scale system change which is required, possibly except as, as a ripple from one place to another, which is important in its own right. You know, sometimes things just take off from very small starting points. But I think this sort of program is really about saying you can do this at scale and it can be deeply participatory. Thank you for sharing that. It's really, really insightful. I'm, I'm going to come in um, with a quick follow-up question, if it's all right, because I'm really curious about the how we do that. And this is a clearly highly complex and dynamic program. And presumably, you guys have been at this for a while, right? I think we first started to put the proposals together about four years ago. Okay, so multi-year, multi-millions, plenty of years to come, various countries, all these hundreds of groups and people. You know, our audience, I think, presumably are, are students learning about action research or action research practitioners. Presumably not very many of them are working on this scale as far as this systemic approach to action research is concerned. And I'm really, really curious to hear from you all about really what does Danny and Marina do and how did you do this, right? Like what, what is going on in the day-to-day? Like talk me through the creation process, the planning process, facilitation, relationship building, right? I'm working on a project here in a little community in, in Peru and it's already like too much, right? I'm having a hard time piecing it together. So how, as facilitators of this program, how are you pulling this off? What does it take on your end to to pull off a systemic action research project on this skill? I think you reflect our own sentiment when you say it's already too much. I think think Marina and I have had quite extensive conversations just in the last few weeks about how impossible it is to hold it all and to Mm -hmm. know what's going on. And in a sense, part of it is actually learning how to manage without being able to hold it all and without even being able to see it all and being able to trust each other to hold different bits without knowing quite what's happening in another space but sort of knowing you still need to know what's happening in that other space so i I think that's tricky but i think you're um you're right all of this is founded on those though each of the stages the sequencing of it and and the absolute detail um Marina and I were talking just the other day about, okay, we're now moving into the action research phase. So what does a facilitation plan for the first meeting look like? So, you know, at that micro level level of detail, everything has to be thought through. Um, Maybe I'll sketch the big phases and Marina, you might want to then just sort of fill in some of the details, but we basically started this out with a proposal, which really started with the consortium partners and us developing you know, challenging our own assumptions about our worst forms of child labor, about participatory processes, about what was needed, about making the case for a systemic process and so on. And that then, once it was accepted by the funder, FCDO, led to a nine-month co-generation phase, where basically all of the partners sat around in workshops in multiple countries talking it through, working out what the sort of structure was, how we might build teams, what the teams would look like, what sectors might we be working in, why would we do that? You know, all of the sorts of questions, but it's still at a consortium level because we haven't got teams yet. And so in parallel is the building of the teams. And I would say one of the most critical things, certainly I feel for me in this process, was spending a lot of time getting the right country coordinators 
under the sort of premise that if you get the right people who really get this, then you sort of deal with 80% of the likely problems that are going to come down the line. If you get the wrong people, then you just spend your time firefighting for the rest of the programme. So investing in really getting the right people, training and supporting people is critical. Once they're in post, we could start to, you know, build the country teams. We'd already thought about what the staffing structure needed to be. So we had built in participatory action researchers into each of the country teams. We had built in documenters precisely because of what we identified earlier as a critique of action research programs, that they're great, but you end up with anecdotal evidence at the end of 20 meetings and no documentation about what actually happened. So we think something great happened there. And here was the result, but how did it happen? Hmm, Well, no idea. We thought around the safeguarding issues. We built in social workers into the team. We've, as as Marina said, male experts into the team, qualitative researchers into the team. And all of this has been iterative. So as we hit a certain point, we say, oh, we need some extra of this, or we need some people that do this. And gradually the teams have been built. So having had the co-generation phase, we then had a setup phase, which was building the teams, training the teams, supporting the teams, dialoguing with the teams. And then... Out of that, we've moved into, if you like, the early phases of the participatory process. So thinking through, how do we collect 400 life stories? How do children collect 400 life stories? What are the safeguarding issues for for children? And there have been some real ones where some children get a food voucher and then other children that aren't involved in the program, uh, you know, three doors up are upset about that. What do you do about that? How do you deal with those sort of practical issues? So building up as we go, what is it that we need? And and then training and supporting people with that. And now we're just moving into that. Now, how do we actually set this up? How do we set up the children's research group and the children's advocacy group? How do we set up action research with business owners? How do we set up action research with children? Are they different? How are they different? What do we need to take into account with when we're dealing with business owners who might be seriously distrustful of our engagement on issues around child labour, or children who are working with heavy machinery, with chemicals every day, with heavy loads, who work through the nights, 16 or 17 hours a day. What are the implications, really practical implications of that for running an action research process? So these are the sorts of dilemmas that we're engaging with day to day. Maybe that's just the, the tiniest sketch. And now we're sort of into the, right now it's all going to happen. So we're also project managing. Like we've got 18 processes which could have 25 meetings and action research groups and strategic groups with government and policy stakeholders and advocacy groups. How do you hold all that together? We need a really good project manager. <laughs> we have one, Anna. But all of that had to be thought through. Who supports her? It's all of those very... So there is something about a process like this has to be highly emergent, constantly changing. Every two weeks, we change the program again. And then next two weeks, we change it again. Meanwhile, another one of our decision-making strands is changing it again in their space and changing it again. And those two spaces have to talk to each other. So we're also thinking about how do we integrate? That's another critical issue for us. So it has to be highly emergent, but it also has to be highly organized and structured because with a program of this scale, it can't be just, I'm a great facilitator. I'll rock up to a meeting and facilitate an action research group and we'll get some great results at the end of it. It, You know, so it's finding that balance between structure and emergence. That's enough from me, Marina. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly kind of what I was going to reflect on. I think there are two things that, well, three things probably that are critical. So a lot of what we're talking about here is intentional design. So Daniel talks about emergence. That doesn't mean you just show up and something happens, right? It actually means you've thought quite carefully through the process. And so what that looks like now in an ongoing way, how we continue to hold and learn and adapt and evolve is that we have structure around our learning system. So we have six monthly after action review workshops. And this is something that I worked with colleagues uh, before IDS and other large programs. And it works really, really well to create some structure around the learning system. So every six months, You come together at those different levels that I talked about. So it happens at the activity level. It happens at the sort of country team level and it happens at the consortium level. We spend a couple of days reflecting on what's happened. What have we learned? What do we need to change? How is the context changing, et cetera? And of course, the emphasis in these workshops shifts as the program evolves and they will in future years, be a little bit more focused on what's emerging from the process, what are our outcomes to use the evaluation language, and we'll use them also as part of our evaluation strategy. But we have these explicit learning questions around our ways of working, et cetera, that we structure these workshops around. So every six months happening at those different levels, and we sequence them, or we try to at least sequence them so that the country level learning feeds into the consortium level learning moments. The activity level after action reviews happen, of course, much more quickly. Yeah. And so the teams actually started calling them mini after action reviews. So we have these mini AARs, as they call them. And what's really amazing to see is that the the culture of reflecting and learning on what we're doing has, if you like, been institutionalized across the program. So the teams, it's just the way we work now. Right? We do something, we stop, we reflect, we capture that, we document that, right? and we use that to then uh, decide how we're going to adapt, how we're going to tweak. So because, as Danny described, the program needs to always be evolving, that can also be really uncomfortable for some people in terms of how they hold that uncertainty that comes with a program that's always, that's always shifting. So the structure around those learning moments is, is one of the key things. The second thing is the emphasizing the people and the relational aspects of everything we do. So Danny's described that very well already. So we spend a lot of our time actually just in conversation, in deliberation, in relational spaces with our partners. But we also brought in an explicit capacity development process, which in our competence framework that we developed for the program, we actually have behavioral competencies or skills, right? So that we're not just talking about ensuring people technically know what they're doing, but actually that they're showing up in the right way and they're reflecting on their own behaviors, which include things like empathy and building a mindset that um, embraces failure right? And learning from what doesn't work. So these are things that we've actually brought explicitly into the program to support that, that ongoing reflection and learning, which is yeah, central to, as Danny says, kind of holding it together. This has been really great. So building off of what you both said, I think that the practice of documentation, reflection, complex systems thinking, I mean, that's fundamentally what it sounds like. You're, this ecology created an ecology of interacting 
participants and collaborators, and you've also created a structure. So you've created a system within that ecology is what it sounds like. So there's a lot of complexity in that. And like you said, you have to trust, you have to have good relationships. You can't see everything that's happening. You just have to trust that everybody's doing their job because you know them and you share the same objectives and you feel comfortable with everybody's capacity to do the work that they need to do. And then you have constant communication. It sounds like you have regular kind of structured communication practices from what I could tell. And I'm sure those get more and more chaotic as activities start to ramp up and some of them slow down and you have to navigate those things. But it was really helpful to hear about some of those really concrete ways of of acting and thinking. One of the core components of action research, participatory action research is reflexivity. And you have all of these different collaborators. So I was a little bit curious about how you engage reflexively with your partners. The other question is what does success in this project look like? I think the overarching goal is to end the worst forms of child labor and make sure children are able to live happy and healthy lives. But that's a goal that we have to work for in in phases and $11 million isn't probably going to be able to do that. So what does success in the project look like? So those are the two questions that I'd like to to kind of wrap up on. Well, we could start at the end on what does success look like? I mean, one thing that I would say is that success might look different to different people within that system. So, you know, to the participants in an action research group, it might just be that they found their voice and were able to to tell their story or that they really were excited that they generated a solution and it worked. You know, and then at the other end of the spectrum, as you say, we, we changed the whole of the, the system of worst forms of child labor. Of course, we're just making, we hope, a small contribution to that. If we can understand and see some of that, what our contribution has made, that's great. But I think there's a sort of a set of intermediate level outcomes in terms of the issues themselves. Maybe I can say something about sort of actual types of outcomes that happen in action research groups. And here I'm going to jump out to other projects because obviously we haven't reached them in this project. But we've got a process which Marina and I are both working on in Mali right now. And it's a peace building program. And the structure is entirely different, but you could say some of the elements are the same. And there will be, you know, maybe 40 or so action research groups and action research groups in the center and so on. But I'm just going to take you into a very micro part of that program. There is a local set of villages that have been exploring issues of mediation and and justice. And in the big system mapping that they did with us, which echoes the system mapping we've done in Clarissa, they looked at both the successes of some of the traditional mediation of the the traditional chiefs and how they do this in what they call uh, the vestibule. Um, And they also looked at the failures and they looked at the successes and the failures of, of the new modern government based institutional justice systems and often you see in many countries these two are in tension with each other so the action research group engaged with that issue and explored the different examples of mediation and the failures and the successes and through our our whole process it's arrived at a conclusion that neither of them fit their purposes and that they essentially designed a new system of justice They've basically created a new vestibule. The critique of the old was that it was completely non-inclusive. It didn't include women. It didn't include young people and so on. So they've designed a new system. And in that, they've also identified land where the building's going to be. They've decided to collectively build the building. And they're collectively working on what that concept actually looks like. The reason I give this example is because it's really tangible. 
You know, it's like, here is a set of problems. We've grappled with them. We've looked at the evidence of all of the successes and failures. We've constructed a solution. Now, the next phase is obviously to do it, to build the thing and actually see if this thing works. And that's also part of the action research process. What's working with us and what's it's not? But for me, success doesn't look like that exactly because that's very specific to that context. But it looks like that in the sense of here is a set of problems and we create solutions to it and we see if they work. And if we can do that across multiple spaces across a program, then we can model the way in which these sorts of processes generate innovative solutions, which then takes us to the process outcomes, which you might want to talk a little bit about, Marina. I was going to sort of combine your two questions in a way, <laughs> in that for me, kind of success, actually, it all kind of hinges on the reflexivity point, right? So that the way in which we've designed the evaluation strategy for Clarissa, but also for the Mali um, project Danny just mentioned, is combining theory-based evaluation with participatory methods, but viewing ourselves as, if you like, a second-person action research group, right? Learning through our process of implementation. And that requires us to be reflexive, right? And so if we do that well, success starts to look like a really interesting evidence base we can point to, right? So that when people want to propose using these kinds of approaches to wicked problems like the worst forms of child labor or how on earth you build peace in, in Mali, that we can actually point to a real understanding of how things have worked, right? And as I said earlier, I'm not suggesting that we don't know how action research works. Many people do. There's lots of brilliant thinking and writing. But to, to understand it at scale as an intervention around these kinds of complex issues, there isn't one place we can point to. So for us, success would be to have made one small contribution into that, uh, that evidence base. And in a way, um, we always debate this, but in a way that's more important right now than the specific child labour outcomes. That's really important. But there are also millions of interventions around child labour. What's unique about this programme is that it can model how you can generate evidence and innovation and change within a system at scale through participatory processes. If we can successfully model that, then that could spread as an intervention modality across multiple spaces across the world in health or in education or in international development or in other spaces. So that's what I would see as the sort of the, the fundamental indicator of success for this particular program. Although we're always mindful that we're engaging with real people that are in really difficult circumstances. And it's not about just what we're trying to get out of the program in terms of participatory process. It's about their actual lives and and whatever we do has to make a positive difference to their lives and at minimum not harm them. It sounds like just to paraphrase, like you're creating a structure for a lived reality that is better than the current one, while also generating information to offer to other organizations, people, partners. Does that sound accurate? I think that's a reasonable way of putting it. I think it's somehow, for me, maybe it's our, our language, but I think it's somehow modeling a change process. Mm -hmm. and, and providing mm -hmm. the evidence which is accessible enough for people to learn from or is, yeah. or is robust enough for people to learn from. Yeah, and I think it's bringing real critical thinking into our own theorizing around action research, really digging deep as to 
how is it that you spark an innovative idea in a particular group? What works for whom, in which context, etc.? These are the kinds of questions that, that we're asking in a way that I think over the many years of, of you know, people using these approaches and methods, I think there is, we are all slightly guilty of wanting to focus on what works. Yeah, which is a very natural human sort of condition. But it's also, I think, those of us in this space are wanting to create positive change. We're strengths-based, right? We don't look at a situation and say, here's a terrible problem, no one can fix it. We look at it and say, what can we do? But the, the flip side of that is that we don't then look at what didn't work and say, what can we learn from that? And I think there is huge, rich learning from the way some of these processes fall apart, because they do, right? Not, all, not every one of the 18 or however many processes in Clarissa are going to work perfectly. Of course they won't. So how do we really take that opportunity? That's, yeah, that's, I think, really important. And, and in that sense, every day, we, it comes back to your sort of semi-practical question, Adam, earlier. <laughs> in a, every day, we're grappling with these sorts of issues of what do we do about this? Or what do we do about that? Because it's not clear how it's going to work and we might get it wrong. So I talked earlier about like food parcels and stipends and payments for expenses. And what do we've been debating this in the last week? What do we do? Do, do participants get payments to join groups? Does a child who takes some time off to come and be in our group and doesn't get paid, do we pay them? Do we pay the children's action research groups? Does that completely shift us away on the one hand from our mutual aid, self-help owned reality towards just in that group because I'm getting paid? That's really problematic, but it's also problematic if a child who would normally get paid enough money to live tomorrow doesn't get the money. And they're, they're not easy questions to answer and there isn't necessarily an obviously right answer, but but sort of owning that these change processes are constantly every day sort of imbued with these paradoxes and dilemmas is a really important part of the process, acknowledging that and then trying to navigate a best possible way, which you then might get wrong and then learning from it seems to us to be quite crucial, really. And then going back to what Marina said, that's all got to be documented. Otherwise, we can't communicate that to anybody. I think my only last thought really is that Every time you have a conversation like this, you realize as ever, you know, what you don't know as much as what you do know, and that this is a constant journey of learning. Unfortunately, it seems as though we've run out of time. I just want to thank you both, not just for coming on the podcast and sharing with us about your project, but also for the work that you do. It's truly amazing and impactful, and it addresses a really important global challenge just want to wish you luck with it as you continue. Thank you very much for having us on. I've certainly learned a lot just thinking this through and great to be able to do that with you, Danny, as well. And thank you for creating the podcast, which I continue to share with everybody. Students really, really enjoy listening to it. So yeah, great work on the podcast overall. Really enjoyed the conversation. Really learned a lot. That's uh, have a great holiday break and uh, enjoy your time off. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore ARPod or the Action Research Podcast. 
You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shikha DeWalker, and Vanessa Gold. See you next time.